recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, Christagenia.org, and this is Christagenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, November 9th, 2013. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and I thank you for listening. Once again, I have Sword Brethren here with me, and we're going to prevent, pre- present the sixth segment to our series explaining to Seed Line, subtitled Pragmatic Genesis. It's subtitled Pragmatic Genesis because I believe it's a practical view of Genesis, which is solely from Scripture, with the help of some apocryphal literature, but we don't need that apocryphal literature that I've quoted to see what we presented from the Bible itself. We will continue in that vein tonight. We had left off last week explaining the fact that Genesis 4.1 is a verse which has apparently been corrupted in its original Hebrew, at least in part, and we quoted some of the Aramaic Targums. I'm going to quote the Palestinian Targum of Genesis 4.1 before we start tonight, just as a reminder, now I've cited several targums from Clifton M. Heiser's paper, The Problem with Genesis 4.1, last week, with the caveat that I don't believe the targums are canonical. They do not have the authority of the Word of God. Where they are of value, however, is that they do indeed represent early attempts, and not necessarily Jewish attempts. The Aramaic Targums didn't start off as Jewish. They were Israelite. There was a, a necessity for them originally as they were used when, when, when the people moved away from the Hebrew language, which evidently a lot of the Levites maintained, and started to speak Aramaic, and, which is a similar dialect, but still significantly different in many facets. And, and therefore, they could no longer understand the scriptures. Scribes began to make targums. And, and this goes back to the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, and it's mentioned in the book of Nehemiah explicitly. Scribes began to make targums in order to interpret the word of God for the people in the Aramaic language. So a targum is basically a translation. Every translation even my own, of course, has a great amount of interpretation in it because there are various ways to interpret words and phrases, and, and, and there's an art to translation as well as a science. So, so every translation, you can't translate anything without some degree of interpretation. It's how you interpret those things that make the translation valuable or not. And, and if you interpret, the, the, to me, my, my endeavor to interpret the New Testament Greek was in the framework of the rest of the Bible and a historical belief in the Bible. So, so every translation is so much interpretation. The Targums are valuable because they show that early Judeans were attempting to rectify Genesis 4.1. They must have understood that something was missing, that something was corrupted. And they were elaborating or embellishing upon it in order to rectify that understanding. 
the Palestinian Targum to Genesis 4-1 states, And Adam knew his wife Eve, who had desired the angel, and she conceived and bare Cain. And she said, I have acquired a man, the angel of the Lord. So, so that's just one alternate reading. The Targum Jonathan has um, even greater embellishment. And it, it is what it is, but we do not need it to prove our point that Cain certainly was not the son of Adam. That the, the seduction of Eve described in Genesis chapter 3 certainly was a sexual seduction. We will show that through nine scriptures, through nine witnesses, we will demonstrate that tonight. Now, some of these witnesses are, are, are help us to create inferences, and some of these witnesses are explicit. And, and again, it's how they're interpreted. But nine witnesses, and, and Genesis 4.1 does not have a second witness. So, so that's, you know, we, we have to um, weigh these things in the balance. Hello, Brian. Hello. And, you know, at the beginning, it sounded like you started to say we're going to prevent. And that got me thinking, in a way, we are going to prevent. We're going to prevent the liars from being able to lie with their lies going unchallenged. And we're going to prevent the mainstream ignorant types from being able to say that they were ignorant and didn't know any better because here we are presenting the truth. Well, while I pray, that, that's, I, I pray, right? It, it's, um, right, I said prevent instead of present, but that's okay. That, right, but, you know, th this recording could last for 100 years, depending on, you know, whether people are still using MP3s and whether the Christogenia website is maintained for, you know, another 100 years. And I don't know about all that. I don't know if it's going to be there next year. <laughs> well, hopefully it'll be there in, in, you know, the decades to come, so future generations may hear this broadcast. They won't be able to say they didn't know, that there was no teacher to teach them the truth. Yahweh willing. It's... um. The, the Genesis account that, that there's um for 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 everybody that that I I don't know for everybody that reads the Bible there's a different interpretation of Genesis and there's a different interpretation of Revelation. What we endeavor to do here is interpret Genesis as it properly should be interpreted through the words of Christ, and that's how we've interpreted it to this point, or, or through the words of his apostles, and, and that's how we will continue to interpret it, because that is how Christians, because, and, and we explain this at length in, in the opening segments of the series, because Joshua Christ told us in Matthew chapter 13 that he reveals secrets kept, well, well, reveal things kept secret since the foundation of the world, we must examine the Genesis account in the light through the lens, I like to say, of the New Testament in the light of the words of Christ and understand Genesis through his words because of his greater revelation. And, and that's the plan of God. And Christ is God. Well, the only way to understand the concept of secrets that have been secret from before the foundation of the world or from, from the foundation of the world, it has to be the Genesis account and what happened just before Genesis, the fall, you know, the fall of the angels from heaven, and then the fall of man in the garden. Well, well right, but we only know that those things happened just be, well, well, before the creation of Adam from the words of Christ and, and his apostles in the New Testament, as we have um, and 
endeavored to elucidate here, and right. in, especially in, I believe, the third um, segment of this pod, of these podcasts, of these programs. And I'm generally not one for conjecture, but it, it's a theory of mine that there may be some valid biblical account out there of exactly what happened, you know, the war in heaven, the fall, and that the enemies of God have suppressed it. Well, well, you know, a, a lot of people have thought that that, this, that there was a lot of conjecture over the Dead Sea Scrolls, and, and, and a lot of people read titles to certain documents and ran with them, right? Mm-hmm. That, um, the War against, of, of the Sons of Light and the Sons of Darkness was one of them. But those documents did not live up to that expectation. That Now, according to, um, and, and Clifton has written on this, according to... I hate to use Catholic titles, but according to Reverend John Strugnall, now Strugnall was a um, he, he was a professor at Harvard University. He, he's a Catholic priest, but he was also a a, um, a Harvard professor, and 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 I forget exactly what what his field was, whether it was archaeology or theology. I really honestly forget, and and I'm sorry about that, but. He can be looked up on, on, on Wikipedia, I'm sure. Well, well Strugnall was one of the few people, and, and there are a handful, who were fortunate enough to have had access to the Dead Sea Scrolls both before the Jews shut off access to them in 1967 and again after the Jews opened up access to them, which I believe was in 1993. So for, for 25 years, only a, a, a few select Jewish scholars could access the Dead Sea Scrolls through the Israel, Israel Antiquities Authority. And um, over this 25-year period, very few people were, were granted that access. Most scholars were shut out. And and that was the choosing of the Jews, and and of course everybody suspected that they were up to no good about something. Well, well Strugnall attested that there was a complete Aramaic Enoch scroll, and, and that would be invaluable because the the scrolls which I do quote from the Dead Sea Scrolls in in, um, in the Enoch literature that they're very fragmented. And and um, very re- relatively sparse, right? Well, Strugnall claims there was a complete Aramaic Enoch that he saw that was there in '68 that wasn't there in '93. Now, now that would be invaluable if, if indeed it existed. But who, who, I mean, I would I would believe Strugnall, right? I would never trust the damn Jews. But how could we go about obtaining that? It, it's not going to be possible, right? All right, and. This is too rich. You know, we've been talking about John 15, I am the true vine. Here's a man, his name is Charles Swindle. You know, I I can't make this up. And he says that Jesus wanted his friends, not only those 12, but those of all time, to know that he was not going to desert them, even though they would no longer enjoy his physical presence. His living energy, his spiritual reality would continue to nourish and sustain them, just as the roots in the trunk of a grapevine produce the energy that nourishes and sustains its branches while it develops their fruit. What, what a ridiculous explanation. Well, well absolutely. And but, they but, say he's talking to his 12 friends. Well, one of them was the devil who betrayed him. So rather, he's talking to 11 friends and one traitor. 
Well, well, for everybody who's read the Bible, is an interpretation, right? It, it, it's sad that there that there are um, men like that have audiences because people don't read the Bible for themselves, right? Not right. enough read the Bible for themselves and and actually ponder and contemplate what they've read. That's you know, study is a lot deeper than just surface reading. It, it study is um. Right, so if all you do is you memorize the King James translation, that just means that you're an expert on someone else's take on the Bible. Well, well, right, but study is all about it is all about cross-referencing context, um, the the greater historical picture, the actual details of the language. There's a lot more to it than just reading. We're going to. Um, Start with Genesis chapter four from the top, and 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 leave aside the Aramaic targums and and some of the things that some of the material we quoted last week, and and demonstrate that there are nine witnesses, which support or or, or prove altogether. I, I mean, to me, the proof is 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 undeniable, but others may not think that. But there are nine solid witnesses, nine ways to show that Cain was not Adam's son. One of any one of these ways by itself may be disputed, of course, but all nine of them together, and I think that the the scales are balanced, and and um, the 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 side that says that Cain is Adam's son, that that they really don't, that they're up in the air. That's the way I look at it. Would Would you like to read um, the, this first pericope of, of scripture, or? or and Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. Is this a good spot to stop and begin explaining or go a couple I more? Just read the five verses so that right. we don't have to go back to And she again bare his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought the fruit of the ground and offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And Yahweh had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But unto Cain and to his offering, he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And if I could just briefly say, the evangelicals, they always have their own little theories. They have some conjecture. They, they always want to talk about, well, what was going on here? Why would God reject Cain's sacrifice and, you know, um, accept Abel's? And the, the atheists and the mainstreamers, they just say that God's an arbitrary jackass or he doesn't exist so it doesn't matter. Or they have some anti-God explanation where the evangelicals say, oh, well, Cain's heart was in the wrong place. He was sacrificing, you know, not, not the, the best of his crops. He was sacrificing stuff he didn't want to eat for himself and stuff that wasn't fit to be sold at the marketplace and stuff no one wanted. He figured he would sacrifice it to God where Abel loved God and he wanted to sacrifice the best of his flock. Well, that's all speculation. It's absolutely all speculation. Every bit of it's speculation. And we're going to talk, and I did a podcast, and Clifton, Clifton and my eyes wrote a paper on a topic, and we did a podcast on this, I believe, last year, and it's called The Battle for the Priesthood. It can be found on Christogenia and especially on Clifton Emmerheiser's site. The, um, the eldest son in the Hebrew tradition, was the family priest. And, and that's explicit, I believe, in the book of Numbers. I didn't look it up for this program. 
but but it is explicit in scripture that the eldest son it is the family priest and the levites were taken as a tribe of priests and this is explicit in in, in the book of numbers the levites were taken in place of the eldest son of each family. Yahweh said that the Levites, as a, a, the entire tribe, would be taken in place of the eldest son, and thus was the Levitical priesthood established. However, up to that point, the eldest son was dedicated to Yahweh God by his parents, and he was the family priest. He, he served that function. We, we will demonstrate that this is true um, as, as this presentation proceeds from the words of Peter, who called Noah the eighth preacher of righteousness, and that helps us to identify the Melchizedek priesthood. What is really apparently going on here, which can be established to some degree in Scripture, is that Abel and Cain are more or less competing that Cain goes to sacrifice and Abel is competing with him for that position of priest and Abel prevails. And that is a lot more scriptural than all the speculation of the mainstream denominations. And, and we'll get into that a little later. Why Cain was not Adam's son and, and we'll begin to, we'll, we'll proceed to give a list here from both Genesis and the New Testament, and, and then we'll discuss some of these scriptures. First, Cain is not included in the book of the generations of Adam, which begins in Genesis 5.1, right? There's no mention of Cain and no mention of the Kenites, the race that Cain sired, and Cain indeed, indeed sired a race. They're listed here in Genesis chapter 4, the beginning of them. They're not listed until Genesis chapter 15, where they're accounted amongst the enemies of, of, of the land of Canaan, that they're accounted amongst the enemies of Israel, the people to be destroyed. And, and of course, the Israelites failed. So, so why would Cain's descendants be, be singled out as, you know, among those nations of Canaan, as they're listed in Genesis chapter 15, and then the children of Israel are told to destroy all those nations. So, so it, it's that that would include the Canaanites and the Rephaim and and the other Canaanite tribes. Well, them. You know, Bill, the evangelicals have an answer for that too. Well, in Genesis five, you know, the book of the generations of Adam, they say, well, Abel's not in it because he was killed, and Cain's not in it because he was wicked by by murdering Abel. He's stricken from the book. But you've already raised the counterpoint to that, that in Matthew chapter 1, the um, generations of Jesus, the book of you know, his descent, his genealogy, they list some of the most wicked kings of Israel. Well, well they absolutely do, and, and they're not disowned. Some of the ancestors of Christ, Manasseh, King Manasseh, that some of those men were the most wicked men in history, and, and, and it, it's basically spelled out that way. Yet they're not discounted that their inheritance that they, they were still kings and and they're still counted amongst the genealogy of christ right and i mean by all rights david was a murderer wasn't he david was a murderer david put um uriah the hittite who, who was an israelite man he was not a hittite and and that too can be established and, and 
Yahweh held them accountable for it, for the, for the death of Uriah the Hittite. So basically, David was a murderer, yes. I wouldn't say he was a murderer for any of his other actions, but he right. did. And, and he sought repentance for it. And, right. and he, he, his family received a curse for it. But Simply being a... I'm oh, sorry, go ahead. He was told that the sword would, would would be against his house. So it's clear, simply being a murderer is not sufficient grounds for being excluded from a book of genealogy. No, absolutely. The, the, the Bible is full of murderers that were, were um, not excluded. From well, the the and I mean, we're going to get to it, but the reason Cain is not in the book of the generations of Adam is because he's not in the generations of Adam. But, well, right, he's excluded. There's a reason. There's a reason why his descendants are listed in Genesis chapter four. Um, Genesis chapter four, as I've attempted to explain on several occasions in this in this series, Genesis chapter four, Genesis chapter from Genesis chapter two, verse four, through the end of Genesis chapter four, I would consider that the second scroll of Genesis. It's the first we have the creation scroll, then we have the scroll telling the story about Adam and Eve, and subsequently the seduction in Cain and Abel, and then we have the scroll that this is the book of the generations of Adam and Eve. That word book is really a word for scroll. This is the scroll, and, and we could call, the, call it a book, that's fine, but Genesis 5.1 starts a third book. The third scroll of Genesis, I would term that. And, and it's unclear where it ends and where the next scroll begins, but at one time, Genesis, like all the other books of, of the Bible, at one time they were a collection of scrolls, and, and when books were, were developed and the technology improved, those scrolls were concatenated by the scribes into single books. And then several thousand years later, they actually put verse and chapter numbers in, which didn't always make sense, right? Hmm. The second reason is that Seth is a replace for a replacement for Abel. Now, if Cain were a legitimate birthright holder, if he was legitimately Adam's son, you don't need a replacement. That then then. Abel doesn't need a replacement. Cain needs a replacement, but Cain's still alive, so he doesn't need a replacement. So, so it, it's if Seth is a replacement for Abel, and the promises go down through the line of Seth, then Cain was excluded for reasons other than simply being a murderer, because other murderers were not excluded in that manner in later scripture. Third, Enoch, and we're not going to elaborate on this too, too much, Enoch is said by Jude to be seventh from Adam. Why would Enoch be said by Jude in his epistle to be seventh from Adam? And what is Enoch the seventh of? And to count Enoch as seventh from Adam, and, and Jude says in Jude one fourteen, in case anybody doesn't really have this quote handy, Jude one fourteen says from the King James version, and Enoch also the seventh from Adam, prophesied of thee, saying, Behold, 
The Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints. What is Enoch the seventh of? Let's count from Adam. So we're not going to count Adam, because it's clearly, even the Greek says seventh from Adam. We're going to count Seth, Enos, Canaan, Mahaliel, Mahalaliel, Jared, Enoch. That's the paternal line. That's six. How is Enoch seventh from Adam? Well, Abel must be there then. Well, well, right. Well, well, either Cain or Abel must be considered. <clears throat> Pick one. Uh, Seth, which which one is the preacher of righteousness? Yeah, yeah. Seth's a replacement for Abel. <laughs> He's not a replacement for Cain. <clears throat> so evidently, <clears throat> Jude chose to count Abel, and I, I believe I, I believe that this all fits into the plan of God, right? That we can determine what the scripture says from all of these little things. But but Jude decides to count Abel in the line of what what can only be considered to be firstborn sons from Adam. There's no other way that Enoch could be seventh of anything from Adam. There's no other way unless it's firstborn sons, real sons, and that would include Abel, and, and when Abel dies, that honor is bestowed upon Seth, and, and, and he is the, um, the, the next in line. So if Enoch is seventh from Adam, we have to count either Cain or Abel, and, and it's obvious that Seth being a replacement for Abel and not for Cain, we have to count Abel. And that, you know, that displaces Cain as a, as, as a son of Adam. Noah is called by... Now, now I know there are, most mainstream translations really botch this one. But there's a big difference in Greek between a cardinal number and an ordinal number. And Noah is called in the King James, which recognizes the, the, the um, correct form of the number, but other versions do not. Noah is called the eighth preacher of righteousness in the Greek of 2 Peter 2 5, the second epistle of Peter, chapter 2, verse 5, where it says, and spared, I'm going to read the King James version, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Well, let me say this, the, the word person's in italics, right? Right, so they're saying he's the eighth person who is a preacher of righteousness. Well, well, you know something? That's how the King James Version interprets it, right? And, and let me read, well, let me see if I can pull up, because it's just as bad no, I can't. Uh, I'm going to have to go. I'm going to read it. I am going to read it. I'm going to read the New American Standard Version. It's even worse. It's even worse than this. It's pretty sad, right? And spared not... Well, well that's the King James. I'm sorry. The, the NAS says, And did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others. Now, the word seven and the word others, they're not even in the Greek text, right? With seven others, 
when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If we take the Greek, if we take the King James, and we scratch out the word person, because that is in italics, so they admit adding that to the text, right? And then we look at the letter A, which follows it, the uh, it's the indefinite article in English, right? And we understand that that's a translator's prerogative when he encounters a noun, that the indefinite article does not exist in Greek. There is no word for the Greek that's equivalent to our word a or a. Well, well, it's not saying, but save Noah the eighth, a preacher of righteousness. It's not saying, but save Noah the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness. The Greek says, and it's very clear in Greek, except that the translators don't understand it, but save Noah, the eighth preacher of righteousness. That's what the Greek says. And Noah's the eighth preacher of righteousness because that's the Melchizedek priesthood belonging to the man who is in line of the firstborn of the descendants of Adam. It started with Adam, who was the first preacher of righteousness. And then it skipped Abel because Abel was never the, the eldest living male in the line of firstborn sons. So is, it us. is it correct in um, Coin Greek that there's only one article, but there are multiple forms of the article? That, no, there's, that, that, right. There's one article. It's the definite article. Right. And there are multiple forms of it, right? There's no indefinite article. In English, the definite article is the word the, T-H-E, right? Right. The, the, that's the definite article in English. In English, the indefinite article is this little a. That's the indefinite, a man, any man, a man, not the man, which refers to a definite man. Oh, okay? So Greek doesn't have an indefinite article. Latin doesn't have any articles. So, so there. <laughs> it doesn't have a definite or an indefinite article. And, and that's, um, I believe, the only European language like that. All of the Romance languages adopted definite articles, but, but Greek doesn't have an indefinite article. Now, now um, Noah, the eighth preacher of righteousness, the first one must be Adam, the second one must be Seth, because Abel never outlived his father. So it passed to Seth, who did outlive his father, to Enos, to Canaan, to Mahaliel, to Jared, and then it skipped Enoch because Enoch was taken to walk with God, right? Enoch did not outlive his father on this earth. So Jared was here longer than Enoch, and it passed to his grandson, Methuselah, who outlived his son, Lamech, making Noah the eighth. The eighth in the line of the eldest sons who outlived his father, therefore being the, the preacher of righteousness or the Melchizedek priest. And, and that's how I see that, but that's the only way to make Noah the eighth of anything. I understand that the, the, the mainstream translators get confused with the eight people on the ark. Peter's not referring to the eight people on the ark here. He's referring to Noah being the eighth preacher of righteousness. And, and the translators, because they don't understand that, they try to add words in to make it 
refer to Noah being the eighth person on the ark. No. That's interpreted it. And, and that's just ridiculous. It's not what it's saying at all. About eight, nine years ago when I was in fundamental, fundamental on Protestant denominations, I always thought Noah was the eighth person on the ark. Well, well, there were eight people on the ark, but how do we know what order they got on there? <laughs> right. It, it's ridiculous. It, it's and and it's not. It, it defies what the Greek is saying, but because that word "ace" is actually an adjective, and it's it's actually modifying the the word "preacher." And I know it's a bit tangential, and we, we don't want to digress and go off down this um, you know, on this tangent, but. It occurred to me, too, somebody was mentioning on the forum, I believe, as well, if Noah was told to take two of every animal, how would he get the white-tailed deer from North America? How would he get the jaguar from the Amazon? How would he get the, the crocodiles from Egypt? How would he get the um, crocodiles from Australia? How would he get the kangaroos? Right. You're on the wrong topic, right? Right. But, but it, it, it does tie in with the flood being sent to destroy the refane and the um, seed of Cain. Well, the well, the, of a local flood. flood. Because the flood was not sent to destroy the Rephaim and the seed of Cain. It was not? It was not. Read Genesis chapter 6. Come on. The flood was what was sent to destroy the children of man, the children of Adam. That word is Adam there, who had sinned against God. It was not. The flood was not to destroy the Kenites and the Rephaim. Oh, the Kenites uh, and the Rephaim survived the flood. We find them in Genesis chapter 15. If the flood was sent to destroy them, then our God is an abject failure. Because hmm. I, I had thought that the main purpose of the flood was to destroy the white people who were mixing with the refane and the seed of Cain and the bastard offspring. The main purpose of the flood was to destroy the children of Adam that sinned against Yahweh. All right. And I guess we'll get into that when we progress through Genesis. Genesis 6. I think we'll wait for Genesis 6. Okay, so we have Noah being the eighth preacher of righteousness. I, I mean, if, if Cain had simply been disowned for murdering his brother, his line is still the line of the eldest son if he's Adam's son. And, and his descendants should be the preachers of righteousness. Yet none of them were. That they, were they, they were never even considered. That there's no record at, at all that they were considered for anything because... He's excluded from the book of the generations of Adam. He's not one of the generations of Adam. Abel, competing with Cain for the priesthood, ties in with that, that the eldest son, the firstborn son, is the family priest. And that's why Abel was sacrificing. If the eldest son is the family priest. Abel has no business sacrificing unless he realizes that Cain really doesn't belong. So he's going to sacrifice also, and Yahweh chose Abel's sacrifice. And, and every other... Um, I understand what Josephus wrote about forcing the ground. I don't accept it. I see that as part of the leaven of the Pharisees. Maybe it's true that the, the Cain line... It is responsible that, that his real parents, that that tree of the knowledge of good and evil is responsible for, for commingling all of our fruits and our species and for forcing the ground. But that's not necessarily the case here. 
And that, too, is, is just speculation. Right. There's no evidence that Cain was a bad farmer and he wasn't respecting the ground or he was hybridizing his crops. 1 John 3.12 from the Christoginian New Testament. We're going to get into the New Testament evidence now that Cain is not the son of Adam. Not as Cain, who was from of the wicked one. And, and that phrase... The wicked one is actually a substantive. It's a, it's a singular, it's an adjective preceded by a definite article, in which case it becomes a noun. It's used, it's a substantive is a word or group of words which aren't normally a noun, but are used as a noun. We see that same grammatical form all throughout the New Testament in, in, in the substantive Ho Christos, which is usually translated the Christ, and it becomes a noun, even though Christos is usually an adjective, which simply means anointed. Christos is basically grammatically an adjective. With the definite article, it becomes a noun, the anointed one. The same thing here with the word poneros, which means wicked. With the definite article in front of it, it becomes a noun the wicked one. And here we have the definite article in the genitive case to poneru, ek to poneru, of the wicked one, or from of the wicked one. And he slaughtered his brother, and with delight, and that's the Christogenian translation because that's what the Greek word, that's one option to translate that, that, that Greek word, charis, with delight he slaughtered him, because his deeds were evil, but those of his brother righteous. Now, if Cain was the eldest son in the family priest, and Abel was sacrificing to Yahweh, perhaps Cain could have exterminated Abel lawfully because he was trying to usurp the priesthood. What, which is the same, what, which is the same thing where it says in the epistle of, um, of Jude that they'd gone in the way of Cain and the gainsaying of Korah. If you read, if you read the story of Korah in the Exodus, Aaron's son Eleazar was appointed a priesthood. And Korah tried to usurp Eleazar's priesthood. That's the gainsaying of Korah. Korah tried to usurp the priesthood, which was appointed by Yahweh in Aaron's son Eleazar. And Korah said, well, I'm, I'm going to set this up and I'm going to make some sacrifices. And, and Yahweh basically said, oh, no, you're not. That's what the gainsaying of Korah was. He was going to establish his own priesthood outside of the priesthood ordained by God. Well, why is that coupled with the way of Cain? Because Cain, not being Adam's son, was nevertheless attempting to associate himself as the family priest, and Abel challenged him. 
Abel must have challenged him legitimately because his sacrifice was accepted. So it's basically Jude which tells us, which, which informs us of that because the apostle associate, associates the way of Cain with the error of Balaam, which is the error of race mixing, and with the gainsaying of Korah. Korah was an Israelite who nevertheless attempted to oppose the word of God by setting his own priesthood up. And that's what we see in Cain. And that's why his sacrifice was rejected, because he was not the son of Adam, because he was a bastard, because he was from Av, from Av, ek to poneru. That preposition, ek, denotes source or origin in its most basic meanings, and and. Ectopeneru, Cain was from Av, the wicked one. He had no business sacrificing to Yahweh, and that's why Yahweh did not accept his sacrifice. So the basic idea is that one Israelite Adamite cannot usurp the priesthood from another Israelite Adamite, but in the case of Abel and Cain, that's not an issue because Cain's not an Adamite. Well, well, that's how I would interpret that, and that's why Abel... (coughs) That's why Abel's sacrifice prevailed. It's that simple. And that's scriptural. And it's the apostle that made the association. And there must be a good reason for it. Cain was um Cain was evil. Let's read the rest of one John chapter. I'm not going to read the whole chapter, of course, but let's read the less the rest of this paragraph from one John three seven. Through this verse in 1 John 3.12, would you like to read it or do you want me to? That, that's the Christogenian New Testament. Starting at 7 to 12, correct? Right. Children, let no one deceive you. He who is bringing about justice is just, even as he is just. He who is creating error is from the false accuser, since the false accuser errs from the beginning. For this, the Son of Yahweh has been made manifest in order that he would do away with the works of the false accuser. Each who has been born from of Yahweh does not create wrongdoing, because his seed abides in him, and he is not able to do wrong, because from of Yahweh he has been born. By this are manifest the children of Yahweh, and the children of the false accuser. All who are not bringing about justice are not from of Yahweh, and he not loving his brother, because this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was from of the wicked one, and slaughtered his brother, and with delight he slaughtered him, because his deeds were evil, but those of his brother righteous. So if your seed is in you, you cannot sin, but Cain's deeds were evil. If your seed is in you, you cannot sin. But Cain's deeds were evil because Cain was of the wicked one. That's what John's saying. Uh, I mean, he's not saying that explicitly, but one has to follow the other. Right, but again, in the, um, the parable, 
a good tree cannot bring forth bad fruit, and good fruit cannot come from a bad tree. Absolutely. We can all make mistakes, but we don't sin because Yahweh is not going to impute to us our sin if you're a child of God. That's explained in, in, by Paul at length in Romans chapter 5, that sin came in the, into the world through the first man, Adam, and, and that all of the children of God are going to be absolved from their sins in Christ. Well, you know, in Romans 9, aren't we told that there are vessels of wrath fitted for destruction and vessels of mercy prepared for honor? Well, well, absolutely, and we're gonna we're going to get to Romans nine here too. But but um, basically, if your seed is in you, you cannot sin. But Cain was of the wicked one. Now, was he spiritually of the wicked one? That's what the mainstream denominations would say. But that's not what John is saying. If your seed is in you, you cannot sin. If you are truly a child of God. Your sin, as Paul says, quoting David in the Psalms in Romans chapter 10, your sin will not be imputed to you. Blessed is the man whose sin is not imputed to him. There's a bigger battle going on here. And Adamic history, that, that transcends Adamic history. And, and it's only one aspect of Scripture. However, if you have the spirit of, of, of Adam... That then that spirit is eternal. If your seed is in you, you cannot sin if you're a child of God. That's what John is saying here. And Cain was a child of the wicked one. It's not spiritual, it's genetic. Well, why do the evangelicals think they can get away with spiritualizing it? Don't they think that someone's going to call them on this? Or do they really think it's spiritual? They sincerely believe this? Or? Well, yes, they sincerely believe it's spiritual. But, you, you know, I, I read Genesis chapters 3 and 4 all day, and I never saw any place where the serpent set up a school. <laughs> you mean where, where he set up a, a little cult following and he's yeah, misleading right. people? Otherwise, good people have been misled spiritually. They had a bad spiritual advisor. That there's nobody that taught Cain to do bad things. Right, Cain, and Yahweh yeah, yeah, yeah. was all the wicked one because he was a bastard. Right, and Yahweh didn't say, I will put enmity between the woman's students and your students and whoever else you mislead. Right, the enmity is between the woman's seed and your seed. Certain opponents of Christ... We're of the race of what we're said to be of the race of Cain in Luke chapter eleven, and I'm going to read Luke chapter eleven from the Christogonian New Testament, from verses forty-six through fifty-one. This is Christ speaking first. So he said, "And to you lawyers, woe, because you load men with burdens hard to bear." And these burdens you touch with not one of your fingers, meaning they never help lift the burdens, right? Woe to you, because you build the monuments of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. Therefore you are witnesses, and you consent to the works of your fathers, because they killed them, and you build. And let me say that that doesn't prove these people are Israelites at all, right? They are certainly not Israelites. And, and the Bible doesn't really record for us who killed the prophets. 
Well, we see that when the priests of Yahweh are being slain, even though there is wicked Israelite kings involved, they're usually being slain at the hands of Edomites and Canaanites who are actually doing the killing. Therefore, you are witnesses and you consent to the works of your fathers because they killed them and you build. For this reason also, the wisdom of Yahweh says, I shall send to them prophets and ambassadors, and some of them they shall kill and they shall persecute, in order that the blood of all the prophets spilled from the foundation of the society should be required from this race. From the blood of Abel, under the blood of Zacharias, who was killed between the altar and the house. Yeah, I say to you, it shall be required from this race. That now, these people, ostensibly, and we, we will see that when we discuss John chapter 8 and Romans chapter 9, they were in Israel, as the Apostle John says in his first epistle, they came out from us, but they were not from of us. And, and that's what one of the um, open secrets, it is the secret of iniquity, all throughout Scripture we see that the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Edomites have infiltrated the, the government and the courts of the kings in Jerusalem and in Samaria, and, and they're responsible for well, well it's, it, it boils down to being our fault because we accept these people, but these people are responsible for all of their infiltration. They're responsible for all of the treachery. And we see that very clearly in the books of the New Testament at the time of Christ. And it's the same pattern repeating itself over and over again. But these people that Christ is talking to in Luke chapter 11 must be of the race of Cain, because nobody, Yahweh is not the devil. The word devil means false accuser. And nobody but Cain can be held responsible for the blood of Abel. Nobody but Cain. So the race that he's talking about here must be the race of Cain. And we can trace the Kenites, the descendants of Cain, and their association with Jerusalem and Judah right down through Scripture. It, it, it's an admitted fact in Scripture. So how do the evangelicals address this, or do they just sidestep it? Well, well, I don't know because I never, I've never addressed this with with an evangelical. Usually, that their first step, they have a, a certain formula. Step one: spiritualize, spiritualize, spiritualize. And if they can't spiritualize something, generally they just sidestep it. I mean, that is pretty consistent, isn't it? They spiritualize the seed of the serpent. They spiritualize the um, John eight forty four. They spiritualize everything. Well, well, I'm simply not familiar enough with, with the, the teachings of the mainstream sects, but I don't want to be. And, and I'm going to read um, two Chronicles, I'm sorry, one Chronicles chapter 2, verse 55. And the families of the scribes, which dwelt at Jabez, the Tirathites, the Shimeathites, the Sukkothites, these are the Kenites, the Cain from Hamath, the father of the house of Rechab. And, and, and we have Kenite scribes in Jerusalem 
listed at the end of the genealogy of the tribe of Judah. They're always there. They had Jew lawyers in those days, too, except that the Jews had different names, right? That they were called Canaanites. And, and the scribes were the, the, um, the, the lawyers of the ancient world, for the most part. So nobody from no, nobody but the race of Cain could be held responsible for the blood of Abel, and that simply establishes that there were members of the race of Cain whom Christ was addressing in positions of, of power and authority in Jerusalem in the first century A.D. That now we'll see from John eight and from Romans nine that that certainly can be established from the other scriptures in, in the New Testament. Certain of the opponents of Christ had a different origin from that of Christ. Even if they physically descended from Abraham, that does not mean that they were the seed, or at least the same seed, that they were the seed of Abraham. And, and, and they were the seed of they were descendants of Abraham, but they were indeed bastards. And, and that can be established, and, and we will establish it. John chapter 8, from verse 33, they replied to him, We are the offspring of Abraham, and to no one have we been in bondage ever yet. How do you say that we shall be made free? Yahshua well, replied to them, Yes, well, I know what you're going to say. And, yeah, and we I'm, could, I'm, should I say it now or save it? Well, I mean, you could say it now. I mean, the Edomites were um, the the Israelites were definitely in bondage. They were in bondage many times. The Edomites were in bondage too. But Christ upbraided the Pharisees all the time for not knowing the Scripture. The Edomites were in bondage to Israel from the time of David until the time of Jeroboam too. However, that that's immaterial because these that these men clearly over and over again through all of their discourses with Christ, they really didn't know their scripture. And a child of Israel can never say, in, in the sense that, that the um, terms are always used in, the, in, in New Testament and Old Testament times, a, a child of Israel could never say that he hadn't been in bondage. Right, because they'd been certainly in Assyria, Babylon, numerous other occasions. Egypt. Egypt is, yeah, yeah, right. Numerous occasions in Palestine, the Philistines had them in bondage. Several other tribes had them in bondage at diverse times. But Egypt is the big one. And, and um, in, in, in the mindset and language of the Bible, your history is also your father's history. And, and and what your father's experience, you count as part of your experience. And, and they couldn't honestly say that they were never in bondage if they were Israelites. However, the Edomites, too, were in bondage to Israel, and they couldn't honestly say that they were never in bondage if they were Edomites. So it, it's, it, it's really... Um, that They're lying one way or another, right? But they're Jews, so we expect them to lie. Right, so... Either they're not children of Israel, or they are children of Israel and they're lying, because children of Israel would not make those claims. And if they made those claims, they'd have to be liars. Right. 
Verse 34, Yahshua replied to them, truly, truly, I say to you that he causing wrongdoing, or, or he committing sin, right, is a servant of sin. Now a servant does not abide in the house forever, a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son shall set you free, you shall certainly be free. I know that you are offspring of Abraham. And there is, you know, Dan Gaiman's responsible for this. I don't know what the hell makes him think this, but this, that this is an old story in Christian identity, and it's just wrong. It's in, um, I don't remember the books, but it's mentioned in at least one or two of Compare's sermons, where it's claimed that, I, that, that the Greek says, I know you say you are sons of Abraham. But I, can never, I never found a Greek manuscript that said that. And I'm a pretty good student of Greek manuscripts. I've never found a Greek manuscript that said, I know you say you are sons of Abraham. All the Greek manuscripts have, I know that you are offspring of Abraham. And they are. Right, through Esau. And, and, right, through Esau. And, and, and Paul substantiates that in Romans chapter 9. Paul also substantiates that in Galatians chapter 3. And, and Paul spells it out. Christ doesn't spell it out. Christ is speaking to them in parables, but Paul substantiates it and spells it out. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. The things which I have seen from the Father I speak so also you. The things which you have heard from your father, you do. They replied and said to him, Our father is Abraham. Yahshua says to them, If you are children of Abraham, you would have done the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man whom has spoken to you the truth which I have heard from Yahweh. This Abraham has not done. You do the works of your father. Then they said to him, we were not born of fornication. They knew what he was talking about. We have one father, Yahweh. Yahshua said to them, if Yahweh was your father, you would have loved me. For I have come from of Yahweh and am here. I have not come by myself, but he has sent me. For what reason do you not perceive my speech? Because you are not able to hear my word. You are the sons of a father the false accuser, or the devil. And you wish to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning, and did not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from of his own devices because he is a liar and the father of it. Now, because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Who from among you censures me concerning wrongdoing? or sin. If I speak the truth, for what reason do you not believe me? He who is from of Yahweh hears the words of Yahweh. For this reason you do not hear, because you are not from of Yahweh. Now, now, the Apostle John, in his first epistle in chapter 4, explains, and, and we've elucidated this in this series already, that there are people born of the world. And there are people born of God. And the right. children of Israel, of course, and, and all the, children, the true children of Adam, if your seed is in you, are born from God. The people born from the world, they don't come from God. Christ no. has 
you are from beneath. I am from above. Would it be fair to even say that those who are born of this world, we should, we could just say they're born of fornication? Well, well, right. They're all bastards. They're all bastards because they're all tied. That they're all connected to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What, which is the angels that sinned, that left their first estate, and they did that, as we've seen in the Enoch literature, by confusing their seed with every kind, by confusing, by bastardizing the creation of God. And all of these other peoples are tied in with them. Include, who did Cain marry? And, and we'll get to that, but he had to marry somebody from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And built a city. For who? For the members of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It's a spiritual city, Bill. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, it could well be, but, but, but it's still a city that he built from, 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 from human building blocks. And when Cain knew his wife, I guess the evangelicals would say it's a spiritual wife. Well, right. So the race of Cain is a spiritual race. It's all genetic. It can be traced down all through the scripture. It's all through seed. The, um, that this establishes very clearly that even though these people are related to Abraham, and they are, they're not the seed of Abraham because they're bastards, because they have a different origin. And Christ is telling them that their father was a murderer from the beginning. And, and, and while most identity Christians, two seed line identity Christians, see this as a reference to Satan, only Cain was a murderer from the beginning, from the scriptures that we have. Only Cain, you could look back in Genesis and see who the first murderer was. It was Cain. So Cain was a murderer from the beginning. Now, I believe there's a reason why Cain was a devil, and that's because Cain was a devil because he was a child of the serpent and not a child of Adam. Otherwise, he couldn't be a devil. If he was a child of Adam, even if his, he was a sinful man, even if he murdered his brother, if he was a child of Adam, he wouldn't have been a devil. Otherwise, all murderers all down through time are devils and you can't show me another place in scripture where a murder david's not a devil and he was held responsible for a murder he's a murderer he's not a devil and there's many other instances in scripture where men were murderers but they weren't devils cain wasn't a devil because he was a murderer he was a devil because he was a bastard Paul of Tarsus clarifies the words of Christ in John chapter 8, and he does that in Romans chapter 9. And I'm going to read um, the first 13. The, the first, I'm going to read more than 13 verses. I, I might read the whole chapter. This is from the Christianian New Testament. I speak the truth among the anointed. I speak the truth in Christ. I lie not, my conscience, bearing witness with me in the Holy Spirit, that grief for me is great, and distress incessant in my heart. For I have prayed, 
that I myself would be accursed from the anointed for the brethren, my kinsmen in regards to the flesh, those who are Israelites, whose is the position of sons and the honor and the covenants and the legislation and the service and the promises, whose are the fathers and of whom are the anointed in regards to the flesh, being overall blessed of Yahweh for the ages, truly. Not, however, that the word of Yahweh has failed, since not all those who are from Israel are those of Israel, as the Apostle John says in his first epistle, talking about many antichrists already having been born. And he says, they came out from us, but they were not of us. Nor because they are offspring of Abraham, all children. But in Isaac will your offspring be called. That is to say, the children of the flesh, these are not the children of Yahweh, but the children of the promise, and the children of the promise are also children of flesh, right? Are counted as the offspring. Indeed, this word of promise, at the appointed time will I come, and it will be a son for Sarah. And not only, but Rebekah also had conceived from one by Isaac, our father, referring to Jacob. Then, not yet having been born nor having performed any good or evil, that the purpose of Yahweh concerning the chosen endures, not from rituals, but from the calling. To her it was said, the elder will serve the younger, in reference to Esau. Just as it is written, quoting Malachi, Jacob I love. And Esau I hated. So Paul is telling us that not all of these people in Israel are of Israel. And then he goes on to compare Jacob and Esau. And we see from the, from, from the historian Josephus and from the prophecy of Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapters 34, 35, 36, that the Edomites had moved into Israel. And, and, and that the Maccabees had taken those Edomites and subjected them to the circumcision where and after they were, they were considered, as Josephus tells us, they were considered to be nothing other than Jews. None other than Jews is how it appears in, in Whiston's translation. The Edomites were all converted to the Judean religion, and from that period became Judeans. Well, you know, remember when the Canaanite prince, I forget his name, he raped Dina, the daughter of Jacob, and Simeon and Levi didn't take it too well when the Canaanites said, let's all, um, you know, intermarry, we'll, we'll live as one, and we'll even adopt your ways, and they said, sure, get circumcised, and, you know, they waited till the men were in pain from the circumcision, and they put them all to the sword. Well, well right, Absolutely. I mean, that's how, you, that, that's how you deal with the enemies of God when they want to come into your community and intermarry and they claim they'll even adopt your faith. Well, well if we'd have done that from the beginning, uh, I mean, we'd have been all right. We, we didn't maintain that attitude in the land of Canaan under Joshua, right? We got right. soft. That there, were little, um, that there were little Novemberists who, who were on the shoulders of these Israelites whispering in their ears that God didn't mean to kill all the Canaanites. Some Canaanites can be saved. He, even, he's going he, to throw one of them some crumbs one day. And, 
even Jacob seemed to have gone soft. He was outraged when Simeon and Levi had completed the, you know, the avenging of their sister's honor, and he seemed to be more concerned about whether or not the Canaanites would strike back than doing the right thing. Well, well, right, and 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 Simeon and Levi paid for that in in their um in in the distribution of. In fact, Levi received the priesthood, but Simeon was passed over entirely, I believe. So he he was passed over, and they were scattered throughout Israel. I'm pretty certain that Judah is younger than Simeon, right? So uh, this that there there are scriptures there. There's apocryphal literature which goes into that story in great detail. Uh, it's in it's found in the book of Jasher. I don't trust most of it, so so I don't like to comment on it beyond what's actually in the Genesis account, right? Well, well, Paul goes on in Romans chapter nine to say that the potter had authority over the clay to make from from the same lump one vessel for honor and one vessel for dishonor, and and that lump is Isaac, and the vessel of honor is Jacob, and the vessel of dishonor is Esau, and and we're going to get into this at much greater length when we get to Genesis chapter 29, I believe it is, because we are going to talk about why Esau was rejected, why he really sold his birthright, and why the promises fell on Jacob. However, what this does is establishes that there are certainly people in Palestine whom Christ is addressing who are Abraham's seed, but who are not of Israel. They are of Esau. Now, Esau married Canaanite wives, and the Canaanites, in turn, had mingled themselves with the Kenites and the Rephaim. Genesis chapter 15. Now we see throughout the historical books of Scripture, the accounts in in Samuel, in Kings, in Chronicles, that there are indeed Kenites and Rephaim in Palestine in considerable numbers, and considerable enough to leave behind a gene pool. Now, we see Christ telling these people in Luke 9 that their race is responsible for the descendants of Cain through the children of Esau, who married Canaanite wives, who had mingled with the Kenites, and this is all recorded in various places in Scripture in the Old Testament, we see that it's very plausible that there were people in Judea descended from Cain. And they are, for the most part, the Edomites of New Testament scripture and history. Do you have any comments? Where would you say these descendants are primarily found today? Well, well, Jews and Arabs. Jews and Arabs. Sicilians, some Sicilians, some Greeks, some Turks, some Germans, but mostly Jews and Arabs. Well, wherever the Jews and Arabs have gone, you're, you're going to find some of their genetic contrails. Now they're all throughout the world, though. They've spread across the entire world. Well, well, that's why I, I threw Germans and, and, and Greeks in there, right? I, I mean, they have spread across the entire world. There's no doubt. If you really know history, the Arabs were, the, the Arabs were, were trading slaves with the Chinese 
for, for um, well, well, Clifton, e- even earlier than I thought, I would have guessed maybe back to the um, the end of the Hellenistic period, but Clifton's uncovered a few things lately that show that the Arabs were, were trading slaves, Negro slaves, bringing large numbers of them into China as early as the 7th or 8th centuries B.C., perhaps. Right, which would explain why in some parts of Asia there are very dark Asiatics that are almost brown-skinned, like in parts of China, Indochina, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, and then in east, you know, the eastern parts of Asia, Japan, they're more yellow, and there aren't many brown or red. Absolutely. The, the China, everybody says, oh, the Chinese are pure. Well, well that's a, a huge lie. That's a huge lie. That they they may be more homogenous in appearance than, than a lot of people, but even that is is very often staged. A group of homogenous bastards. Well, well, right. I, I mean, if you go to Chinatown and really observe the Chinese, you'll, you'll see a lot of cracks in in that homogeneity, that the perception of that homogeneity. That the um, the Chinese are certainly not pure, not by any means. That the um, the entire Pacific Rim has been infected with Negro blood. And that's very clear. And and that's why you have Muslims all the way to the Philippines was because the Arabs were trading and and, and importing their slaves and, and converting people and settling all the way through Malaysia as, as far as the Philippines and, and southern India and, and, and the, the entire southern coast of Asia. And, and yes, it, it got pretty far inland. There's no doubt. So, so there's... Pure races, I mean, but when we get to um, to Hebrews chapter 13, I mean, Paul says that if you're not chastised by Yahweh, you're either a son or a bastard. And there's no Chinaman in there. You're a son or a bastard. We know who the sons are. Everybody else fits into the bastard category. That they are of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That is how they got here. Yahweh God did not create them. When we mixed with them, that's when they became tares. That's when they became the seed of the serpent. That's when they became dangerous to us because we mixed with them. If we never mixed, if we never race mixed, the other races would never have been a danger to us. With this, we will go to Matthew chapter 13 to establish that Cain was not the son of Adam. But because if Cain, if Cain is the, um, in, in John chapter 8, Joshua Christ tells these Pharisees, who, who he basically said were the sons of, of, of someone who was the murderer from the beginning, which can only be referring to Cain, just as he told them in Luke chapter 11 in a different way that they were the offspring of Cain. In John chapter 8, he tells them that your father is not my father. And if Cain is the son of Adam, then we have to ask ourselves, is Christ telling the truth? Cain can't be the son of Adam. He can't be the son of Adam. 
Matthew chapter 13. Would you like to read the parable of the wheat and the tares? The parable of the wheat and the tares basically shows that the Adamic creation of God was corrupted right in the beginning. Take it from the top. From Matthew 13, 24 to 30. All right. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came, and sowed tares among the wheat, and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, did thou not know, did thou not sow good seed in thy field, from whence then hath it tares? He said unto them, An enemy hath done this. The servants said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them. But gather the wheat into my barn." Well, well, here we go, Matthew. The, the next, um, he, he gives another parable, and he, then he says that all these things, Yahshua had spoken in parables to the crowds, and without a parable he spoke nothing to them, that that which was spoken through the prophet will be fulfilled, saying, I shall open my mouth in parables, I shall bellow things kept secret from the foundation of society. From, from Right from the Garden of Eden, we have things that have been kept secret. That things that Moses, that were not revealed to Moses, who, that Moses did not record in, in his portrayal of the early history of our race, Christ revealed 1,500 years later. And isn't this cruel, though? I mean, the tares are bundled and burned. They're not even just set aside or left in the woods to their own devices. They're well, thrown in the furnace. But they're not God's children. They're not God's children because they were born of the world. You know, if you have only sons and bastards, as John, as Paul explains in, in Hebrews chapter 13, or chapter 12 it might be, I think it's Hebrews 12.5 or 12.8, if you have only sons or bastards, Paul says if you're not chastised, then you're a son and not a bastard because Yahweh chastises his children. If you're not being chastised, you're a bastard. You're not a son. Okay, if Paul says that, and you say, well, what if I'm a Chinaman? Well, well there's no third option there. You have to fall into the bastard or the son category. And, and only white Adamic people descended through Seth are sons, right? So, so if you're a Chinaman, well, well, then you have to fall into the bastard category. There's no third choice. And that's why there's no third choice. You're either a weed or you're a tear. You're either from the tree of life, and your name is written into the book of life, or you're from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and you were born of the world. And Yahweh God, he put his children here, and, and he promised his children eternal life. And, and these people born of the world, they're not going to be forced on God. They don't fit into the picture. They're never going to fit into the picture because they are the tares. They're born of the world because they're born in error. The whole world lieth under the power of the, of the wicked one. 
They are born in error. If your seed is in you, if you are an Adamic man and you go out and choose an Adamic wife and have children, then your seed is in you and that child's seed is in him, that Adamic seed which Yahweh God created. But if you go out and pick a Hutu wife and have a, a, a baby Migwit, you can't force that on God. He didn't create that. He's not going to accept your sin. That's fornication. You can't expect God to, to accept fornication. You can't accept him, expect him to accept people who are born of the world. It's not going to happen. Christ said in John chapter 3, unless a man is born from above, he shall not see the kingdom of heaven. He's not going to see it in any form. So, so that's it, it's is it cruel? It, it's cruel from a humanist viewpoint, but it's not cruel from God's viewpoint because God had a creation, and and, and His first law is kind after kind. And well, if, shall the um, that law shall the place. Right. Shall the clay say that a thing that formed it, why hast thou made me thus? Right. Right. The clay doesn't have a choice in the matter, does it? That, that's why in, um, since we're in Matthew chapter 13, That's why Christ said in the parable of the net, again, the kingdom of heavens is like a net, having been cast into the sea, and it gathers from out of... Now, now this is the Christogenian New Testament, right? And it gathers from out of every race. The word is genos. The word is race. It's, it's kind in the King James. I'm glad they didn't put generation. Which, when it is full, bringing... Up upon the shore and sitting, they gather the good ones into vessels, but the rotten ones they cast out. Thusly it shall be, at the consummation of the age, the messengers shall go, and they shall separate the wicked from the midst of the righteous, and they shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That now we can't imagine that the parable of the net that in that parable, Christ is imagining that the angels are going to separate the fish along different lines than those which he says are sheep and goats in the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew chapter 25. We just can't imagine that. You're either a sheep or a goat. There's no crossing over from one side to the other, right? And the, the, the good kind of fish and the bad kind of fish, they're races. It's gathering from every genos. It's gathering every race into that net. And the bad race is thrown into the fire. They're a bad race. They're bad along genetic terms. They're not bad along behavioral terms. So there's not going to be a division of sheep in this line, bad goats in that line, and good goats over here, and the good goats can eventually file in behind the sheep? That, that's Catholic, right? 
The explanation to the parable of the wheat, of, of the wheat and the tares, then leaving from Matthew thirteen thirty six, then leaving the crowds, he had gone into the house, and his students came forth to him, saying, Elucidate for us the parable of the tares in the field. And responding, he said, responding, he said He sowing the good seed is the son of man. Now, Joshua Christ, Jesus Christ, is Yahweh God come in the flesh. He sowed the good seed when he planted Adam in the garden. Now the field is the world, and the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. But the tares are the sons of the evil one. And there we have the same grammatical construction as in 1 John chapter 3, the evil one. It's a substantive. And the enemy who sows, sows them is the false accuser, the devil. And the harvest is the consummation of the age and the reapers are the messengers. Now, when Christ gave the parable of the wheat and the tares from Matthew chapter 13, verse 24, it can be fully inferred that this sowing of the tares happened right at the very beginning. It says that the man sowed good feed in his field, and he went to sleep. And while the man is sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and departed. And that can only be a description of what happened in the Garden of Eden. So is there an implication here, then, that Cain and Abel were twins with different fathers? Well, well, you know, that belief is extant in ancient literature. It's in Hesiod. I was thinking about pulling that out for the series, and, and for tonight, actually, and I decided not to. I don't think it matters whether you want to think that Cain and Abel were twins or not. I don't think that the text, the text certainly doesn't demand the interpretation that they're twins by any means. I'm just thinking of the idea that, you know, if the good seed is sown and then immediately after the bad seed is sown. Well, well, you know, Genesis 4.1, Genesis 4.1 describes that this Cain as becoming an actual being before the man, you know, that before Abel was born, and it says, and again she bare his brother Abel. Mm-hmm. I don't think that that, that that necessitates there being twins, but it could be read that way. So, so I don't, it doesn't matter to me which way you want to read that, whether right, it was so not. It's not a particularly big deal. I don't think it's a big deal, no. There are, and, and especially because verse 1 is corrupt, I really don't want to make anything out of it, right? The... the um, The ancient Greek literature, in the ancient Greek literature, there's a story about Heracles, okay? And Heracles is one of the gods, right? He's one of the giants, actually, is what he is. And, and, and um, he had a brother, or a half-brother, and him and his half-brother were twins. His half-brother's name was Eteocles, I believe. And one of them was born from a union of one of the gods with his mother, and the other one was born from a union of a mortal man and his mother the same night. 
and and that's in 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 the um in the epic cycle i i believe it's in hesiod's theogony actually theogony is is um hesiod's famous poem which describes the origination of the gods and goddesses. That's why it's called Theogony. It's basically the race of the gods, right? And it's, it's Greek mythology, but it's very telling in a lot of aspects as to things that they believed. And, and they had one, that one story concerning Heracles where you have a, a, a giant and a mortal man born in the same womb being twins, because one was conceived of a mortal father and one was conceived of Zeus or, or, or Apollo or, or, or one of those idols. I, I forget which one exactly. And maybe I'll pull that out for, for next week. I, I thought about including it in tonight's program, but I, I didn't think it was that important. Just to show that you know, similar stories existed in some of the other myths of our race. But I don't think it's important. You know, the text reads as if they were twins, but I don't think that it insists upon that, and, and that's my opinion, but I don't want to make anything of it because Genesis 4.1 is a corrupt verse, and demonstrably so. All right, fair enough. So I wouldn't insist that anybody believe that they were twins. It doesn't, I don't think it matters. It, it doesn't matter to me. The um, that there's a whole we we could get into maybe we could we could on a future segment of this series get into some of the ideas based around Genesis four one in in relation to things like telegony which which I think is junk science it, it's not true and, and certain other um certain other of the heresies that people want to drag into Genesis chapter four that are not that that are basically not scriptural. To me, what's important is understanding Genesis chapters 3 and 4 through what the scripture says. And and that's why this is pragmatic Genesis, right? And, And the scripture tells me that Cain is not Adam's son at all, except... For Genesis 4.1, which is a demonstrably corrupt verse, and we have many, many witnesses which refute Genesis 4.1. And I think it's more important to understand the words of Christ in relation to Genesis 4.1. And Christ is telling these people who are the children of a murderer from the beginning, which can only be Cain, that his father and their father are different, and they have different origins which means that Cain can't be the son of Adam. He just can't. And that's the words of Christ, and and they outweigh anything in in Genesis to me, because Jeremiah 8.8 says, You think you have the law of the Lord, but rather the scribes have turned it into a lie. And and it's very obvious that Genesis 4.1 is probably one of those lies. The parable of the wheat and, and the parable of the wheat and the tares, as we like to call it, the, the sons of the kingdom, they're not sown spiritually as time progresses. 
they're sown genetically as time progresses. The beginning of that sowing was in the Garden of Eden when Adam was placed there, and the beginning of that corruption was in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve had transgressed there. And, and that's the only scriptural way that I would read this parable. And we're explicitly told, too, when his apostles wanted him to declare the parable, he said, the enemy that sowed them is the devil. Absolutely. In reference to the tares, that the tares are the children of the wicked one. He didn't say the tares are the spiritual students or the ideological disciples of the wicked one. And the only way to produce tares and, and, and to sow tares among the wheat is to, well, well, to basically impregnate wheat women with tare sperm. That, that's the only way I see to do it. And, and that's sure, certainly what I believe happened. We're going to... Um, well, we're going to terminate this program here. I think we've carried this far enough. I mean, we can't get past Genesis 4 or 5, but that's fine. We'll, we'll um, discuss the rest of Genesis chapter 4, what needs to be discussed, I think, um, next week, and move on to Genesis chapters 5 and 6. All right. Thank you for being here. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening, everybody, and good night. Praise Yahweh.